Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. Now, in our 16th season, with over 500 episodes in 17 countries, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I've got such a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about teens, and teens are such unique creatures. I have two of them. Actually, I have a preteen and a teen, and everybody warned me how awful it was going to be, but I really have enjoyed uh, so far the teenage years with my kids. Um, it's unique. It's different. It's unlike any other uh, group of kids, and if you guys are listening today and you're going to have teens, this is the show for you. If you Kids, if your kids are little, um, it's helpful to know where uh, your parenting leads you. And some of the things that we plant when our kids are really little grow up and surprise us and bloom into the most beautiful flowers. And we're going to talk today with Donald Moses. Now, he wrote, Dr. Donald Moses, he wrote a book with Dr. Wendy Moss. And the book is called Raising Independent Self-Confidence Kids. And there are nine essential skills to teach your child or teen. And, you know, parenting is is dicey on a good day. I'm a single parent. I'm soul supporting. I do have my 86-year-old dad that lives with us. I took him in after my mother died. So it provides some parenting stability. And I think my mom and dad were good parents. I turned out okay. So uh, I can defer to them. But my mom has passed on. So I'm kind of missing that parental link that many of us have that we can go to and say, hey, is this normal? Or hey, do you remember this? What did you do? Uh, Thankfully, I was raised with a bunch of brothers and sisters. So, so far, a whole lot has not surprised me in my boys' teenage years. But we live in a digital era, and things are different. And one of the things that we read about a lot is how to create confidence in your kids. And so I'd like to introduce Donald Donald Moses to talk today about confidence and why are our kids struggling so much? Well, let's start at the beginning. It doesn't really start in the teen years. It starts way before then. And uh, to quote, if you'll see the uh, dedication of my book, uh, to my dad, who was a child psychologist and the school prin- elementary school principal, uh, the quote is, when raising children, the first 75 years are the most difficult. <laughs> and uh, and once I, once I reached 75, he was able to relax. But uh, I think that it starts in very early childhood. Uh, it starts practically, you know, at birth, really, where a child learns that he can where she can rely on another human being uh, for all the necessities of life. Because at that age, uh, there is absolutely no ability to take care of uh, him or herself. So uh, I think that we have to think about developing a sense of comfort and security and a sense that you can rely and depend on other people. not on external uh, things like gangs or drugs or anything uh, once they reach their teen years. Uh, do you think, Dr. Ma, do you think that some kids are born more confident? Like I look at both my boys and Zachary, my younger one, he just popped out raring to take on the world. And my older one, Max, he was more cautious, more careful, even, you know, in their exploring of toys and the toys they chose so do you think there's a, a component in us that starts out either more confident or less confident? I think uh, by experience we have to say yes, because there's no doubt there is a difference at birth. Uh, some children are very, very active and very exploratory, and others are very quiet and uh, actually a little bit timid. So uh, there is no way of telling uh, how your child is going to grow, but especially with the timid ones, it's important to develop those skills that we talk about in the book so that when the child reaches uh, 25 or 30, they're no longer timid and able to cope with whatever uh, a young adulthood and adulthood has to dish out to them. Uh, in, in case nobody out there has noticed, 
Uh, adulthood can pretty uh, be pretty anxiety provoking. Uh, <laughs> things happen. We have to deal with every day, and we have to prepare our children to be able to deal with frustration, anxiety, difficulties, uh, anger, all of the things that one experiences as an adult, and handle them in a way that's appropriate rather than in, a, in an inappropriate manner. Dr. Moses, today's episode is sponsored by 4Patriots.com. That's the number 4Patriots.com. And if you use code MILITARYMOM, you'll get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food. That's 4Patriots.com. Use code MILITARYMOM. And as we talk to Dr. Moses today about family readiness, especially with teens, it's really helpful to have yourself set for hurricane season. Hurricane season is here and the time to prepare is right now. Now, when Hurricane Ida hit the Gulf Coast, it destroyed countless homes and left so many without access to food and clean water. Actually, millions lost power, some for weeks. And the floods that followed the hurricane washed out roads and made it really impossible for grocery stores to restock their shelves. And families were left hungry and desperate and waiting for help that was slow to arrive. But what if you didn't have to rely on FEMA to provide for your family during a crisis? And the answer is simple. You can be prepared with emergency food care from Four Patriots. Their long-lasting and delicious food options are specifically designed to provide you and your loved ones with the sustenance you need when you need it most. Now here's what we need to know about these Four Patriots survival food kits. They're hand-packed in the USA, they last for up to 25 years, they come packed inside these storage totes, and they include a wide variety of delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. And they're backed by thousands of five-star customer reviews. And Four Patriots survival food is not just for natural disasters. It's a backup plan. If you have a power outage or a blizzard or there's rising food costs, you know you can have a reliable source of food to see you through. And I just went through the hurricane in Los Angeles. We got hit by a hurricane and had an earthquake at the same time, knocked out our power just for a half a day. But the fact of the matter is we need to be prepared. So you can go to 4patriots.com and use code MILITARYMOM to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including our emergency food supply kits designed to last up to 25 years. Just go to 4patriots.com and use Coach Military Mom to get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food. That's 4patriots.com. Use Code Military Mom. Now we're talking today with Dr. Donald Moses about how to get the best out of your teen and having a relationship with a teen as a parent is really difficult. But even with difficult parents, Dr. Moses, you were talking about kids that came from very difficult circumstances, and yet they turned out terrific. I've had the patients who come from the most psychotic parents who grow up to be, they have their problems, but relatively fine. And then I have uh, youngsters who come from what appears to be on the surface superficially, uh, normal parents, people on the outside say, what a wonderful family who grow up to be totally messed up. So it's very hard to predict exactly what a child will do. But to give the child the best chance of growing up and dealing with adulthood in a healthy manner, you have to have a uh, parents who are loving, caring, respectful. Uh, there's a word in Yiddish, kvelling, which is uh, yeah. meaning to beam when you see the child, uh, that you, there's a certain big smile that comes to your face. And you're proud of them. And so I think that this is an important component, the the early parent-child relationship and the early parent-parent relationship. It's funny that you said that. I can still see myself as a little girl getting out of the pool at like five or six years old, my first swim meet, and seeing my dad's face. Like, I will never forget that he was so happy. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, that that would pop into mind. Because I think at our core, we all just need to belong and have a place that we're safe and, and loved. But also a place where uh, you feel as if your parents approve of what you're doing. Ah. One of the biggest problems that we have today that I find empirically uh, by my own experience uh, is that parents are unwilling to allow the child to run risks. When I think of my own youth, which was back in the 50s and uh, early 60s, uh, we had no seatbelts, we had no uh, helmets, 
Uh, and we somehow survived. <laughs> I don't believe that we should get rid of seatbelts and helmets, but I want to say that uh, this concept of overprotecting a child has gone too far. There oh, are parents who... There are parents who, with teenage children, have an app on their phone where they can tell where their teenager is at any time. To be perfectly candid, I was not one to be that obedient when I was young. And if my parents had that, the first uh, pickup truck with California plates, I'd throw my cell phone into the back of that truck and let them think I'm on my way to California. <laughs> but I think, that, I, I think that the child has got to know that parents trust him. Uh, and you have to teach the child that. When you teach a child uh, age-appropriate risks, you're not going to walk your child across the street holding its hand at 13, or you're not going to tell your child at 25 that you're too young to drive. And I think that the age-appropriate risk of running for children is what helps them to develop a sense of security, the ability to handle things. And this goes right on to from early childhood to adolescence and even early adulthood. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at kids today, and I, I see it in my kids' peer groups, you know, kids that, that cannot hop in the swimming pool without their mother saying your, the cell phone needs to sit by the side of the pool in case you need something. I have a pool uh, dock, and I have a lot of kids over, and I usually take a basket, and I say, okay, everybody's phones go in the basket, because, you know, they'll sit under my awning and play video games or text each other on the phone when it's supposed to be a birthday party or a pool party. But it stems a lot from the parents. I had a big fight with one of my kid's friend's moms because I took his phone away. And I said, hey, we're swimming, we're barbecuing, we're playing music, we're playing with the beach ball, like, you know, a normal California pool party. And your kid is sitting on a, you know, a chair on the phone. So I took his phone away. And the mother was so upset that she wouldn't be able to reach him. And I'm like, He's up the street. He's at my house. There's three parents and a lifeguard. Like you couldn't get safer, you know, unless I wrapped like a rubber, you know, float around his neck. And, you know, the kid was 13. Um, uh, I laugh because uh, that really is uh, an example of why I call the cell phone the electronic umbilical cord. Yep. Yep. Uh, or we call it the, the electronic leash. Well, umbilical cord is much younger. Oh, that's right. And it comes from the mother. <laughs> and I think that this is a, a major problem. We wonder why kids cope. I'm not going to get into this because it's not uh, part of this book. Sure. But the opiate, uh, the opiate epidemic that we're experiencing in this country yes. is really coming from a very large, a large part of it, not all of it, but a large part of it is coming from uh, kids who are so filled with anxiety about their adult or their teenage life because they feel they just can't cope. Sure. Sure. You know, I see it. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll relate it because I do have, you know, kids in this age group. Uh, my older son who's 15, he and his friends are so worried about getting a car. They've been worried about getting a car since they were 12. And, you know, Doc, I grew up driving like old farm vehicles, like an old pickup truck. And, you know, so driving wasn't that big a deal. But out here, it's what car do you drive? What car are you going to get? Is it a new car? Is it a lease? Is it a this? Is it a that? And, you know, these are really adult decisions for the parent to be providing transportation for the kid. But the idea that they would be stressed out over what car they're going to drive and they're 13, 12, 13 years old, and this continues on, and it really ramps up right before their 16th birthday out here. And I, it's the same thing here on Long Island. Uh, the, the kids are all driving BMWs and Mercedes Benzes. but. Yeah. I always say uh, to the child, this is what I said to my son, oh, you want that car? You're going to pay half. You can get whatever car you want, but you have to pay half of it. And so he, he was working since he was about uh, 11 or 12 years old to earn money towards his car. And then he got the car he can afford. Right. And I think that one of the other problems that we have is that parents are all too ready to pick up the bill for the child for whatever the child wants uh, from a very early age, from little children who, I want this toy, to uh, teenagers, I, I want this car, to, t to tweens who say, I want this particular cell phone, and right. they get it. 
Right. I mean, you think of cell phones, $750. And you know what I think is even more insidious, Doc, is I think the video games, because they don't clutter up your house. Um, I have a one of my kids' friends, I went over to his computer. He had some problems on it. He says, you know, can you help me fix it? And I'm like, sure, I'll come over. And I looked, and the guy had probably close to $2,000 worth of video games. Now, they're not blocking up the, you know, like when I was little, I used to buy a lot of books and my parents would get mad because my books would be piling up and they were all in my room and time to get rid of some of your books and, you know, but electronically you can hoard these things and you can continually give your kids stuff app after app and game after game. And you don't even have any concept of how much volume it is and they don't even finish the last game or they use the cheat codes to blow through it before they start the next game. And they put it on a credit card. So nobody knows how much it costs. Yep. So really there's a lot of what is uh, parent buying ignorance. But we ask, what can we do to help the, these children uh, yeah. to develop what we call uh, in sort of psychobabble, executive functioning skills, the skills that allow a, a teenager, a, a child to become a teenager, to become a, an adult. Uh, these executive functioning skills are those that help a child know what they have to do, know how to begin what they have to do, know how to continue and follow through on the task and how to wrap it up. And I think parents who have had teens know how uh, frequently a child may come to you uh, and say, uh, I have this essay to write. I don't know where to start. Well, that's life. Life is you have to know where to start. So you could teach your child these things, first of all, by uh, sitting down now helping a child learn how to organize the task, uh, setting up a schedule both a daily schedule uh, and a monthly schedule to help a child develop a kind of uh, a, a priority to prioritize um, his, his tasks and his work. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, allowing children to uh, to take on the task by themselves, not not taking it on for them, but helping them. I remember one uh, man who I treated who was very upset, very, very insecure, because every time he started a task, he used to like to build model airplanes and model ships when he was a, a tween, a young woman, 13, 14, too. And every time his dad would come to, quote, help him, he would say, oh, let me do it. I can do it uh, faster. And what did he teach his child? He told his child that the child, that he really was quite inadequate. And as an adult, he continued to feel inadequate. Uh, I think that most parents uh, don't realize how much impact uh, small uh, small interactions with your child or things that you might say to your child have lasting impact. And I think it's a uh, it's a big problem in, in raising children. You have to be aware. You have to use your judgment. No truth to children. As you said earlier, no two children are the same, and you can't treat them the same. No two children are born into the same family. Your older child is born as an only child. Your second child is born as a younger sibling. Uh, the parents are not the same. You've already had one child. You have some idea what to expect when you have the second child. So each child has got to be judged by his or her own ability. and. Uh, to be able to moderate and to, uh, to to individualize the way you deal with that child and uh, its tasks, its future, um, and what you expect from it at any given age. You wouldn't expect a three-year-old to be able to build a model boat, but you would expect a 13-year-old to do it on his own. Right. So I think that uh, this is a, the uh, age-appropriate judgment of a, of a parent is extremely important in raising a healthy child. Well, and I think too, an, an, an eye on 
on the the culture in which like the education culture your kids are raised in because one of the things I did with my kids they were like third and fourth grade they were running for the school you know the class representative and the you know the task was to make these posters so I'm like okay here you go here's your supplies knock yourself out and you know I didn't know that a lot of the other parents would do the posters for the kids. And, you know, my kids still give me a hard time on this one because, I mean, their posters looked ridiculous. They looked aged. They looked like a third grader made it. Fair enough. You know, but then they were up against these professionally printed Kinko's, you know, custom design, blah, blah, blah things. And that was a really tough parenting moment for me because in my zeal to do the right thing, to say, hey, the assignment says, make your own poster, you know, I'll help you hang it up and I'll help you with some little things, but I'm not going to do it for you. But then you put it up and you hang it on the school wall for the whole school to see against all these professionally done, you know, parents had their graphic designers do their kids posters. In that situation, Doc, what would you have done? I would have done exactly what you did because uh, unless these parents are willing to move up to college uh, with their children and do the same thing, uh, the children are not going to feel that they have the ability to do the work. And as unfortunately we know, many of the college students go online to get their essays, oh, uh, sure. to get anything that they have to do, and they don't do their own work. So then they get out into the world, and they think they can take the same kind of shortcut, and the boss looks at them and said, you're not doing a good job, you're fired. Yeah. And this is a, a very uh, big problem these days. Uh, of uh, inadequate work uh, by many of the young people when they get out into the workforce. Right, and they don't have the skills and the tools. What do you say to your kid, though? You know, my kid my kid was mad at me. He's like, Mom, you embarrassed me. You made me do this. And I said, hey, that's, that's what the assignment was. Like, we followed mm-hmm. the rules. We followed, you know, and in this era that we live in, I think, a lot of the parents, especially as you go up the affluent food chain, think the rules don't apply to them. That's true. But I'll tell you, the way I handled it, I, was a, I had a strange way of talking to my children. I would say to them, it's your fault for being so stupid to choose us as parents. <laughs> if, you were chosen, if you were chosen smartly, your chosen parents would have done the work for you. But of course, they're not, they won't do the work for them in college when they get out into the real world. So maybe you're better off in the long run. Yeah, I do. I mean, I agree I'm better off in the long run. It's just hard to tell a third grader, you know, who did the right thing and didn't, did the optimal work and got, you know, the negative results. That's, those are tough. They didn't get a negative. No, 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 no. The others got a negative result. Unless you have a teacher who's a complete moron and doesn't recognize uh, a professional job from a third grader job, uh, then your children uh, got the, did the best job and the other children did no job at all. And no job deserves a zero. Yeah. We had morons. Yeah, morons. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's also is that why I've called the, uh, coined the word edumacation? Yes. They say there's no word edumacation. They said there's not much education, so I had to find a non-word for a non-existent thing. <laughs> do they teach, uh, in California, do they teach for the test, for the standardized test? Um, where they teach children to learn things? Uh, in a lot of respects, we're in a STEM school, so it's a lot towards teaching toward the test. But I'm a New Yorker by birth, so I have this anti-California, and everybody laughs at me because I'm like, I just don't think California is teaching the kids the way that I want them to be taught. So I had this thing called mommy school. And mommy school was in the summer, I would call my cousins and my sisters back east in Buffalo and say, in Albany, and say, hey, what did you cover? What are the topics? I'd go over it. And then I would supplement my kids' um, education because... I don't think people realize how varied our large country is in the quality of education. And, you know, our schools get out earlier, they're shorter school years, they have uh, shorter days, less opportunity, and they have, I don't know, nine or 10,000 per kid per year uh, per capita for their education. And some of the East Coast um, states have 19 or 20,000. So, you know, economic... Cheer up, Sandra. You, you didn't lose anything by moving to California. <laughs> the education here is no better than it is out there. And this is a very important fact. 
what you just said. The parent has got to teach the child how to survive, how to exist. Uh, schools teach them academics, but it's up to the parent and running risks with the child to teach the child how to cope with the world. Schools do not teach that. And if you can't cope with the world, no matter how academic you are, you're not going to uh, be very successful. I know five different Yale graduates from Yale. Good schools. You've heard of it, I'm sure. Uh, they're all failures. Total and complete failures. Oh, I got a whole list they cannot of function. I went to Northwestern for my undergraduate and graduate work, and some of my friends there who were so phenomenally book smart, you know, they really, they could matriculate till the cows come home, but they couldn't, they couldn't cope. They couldn't get along. They couldn't deal. They couldn't work in a, you know, professional environment. And that's one of the things that I really worry about my kids' generation, not to be like the helicopter parent, but their skills their digital skills are phenomenal and their personal social skills are abysmal. Really? Yeah. Because uh, that the, is, the little ones are on their phone. Is it, is, it, is it your children or is it the fact that uh, the other children really cannot interact with them? It's, it's, yes, it's the, it's the, it's the more the difficulty in interacting because I, a lot because of my dad living with me, he's like, boys, put your phones down, boys, shake hands, boys, make eye contact. You know, he's, he's worked really well. And people are always like, oh, you know, your kids have such nice manners, but in their peer groups, there is none of that. You know, like my dad recently, he was sitting in the living room and two of my friends, uh, kids came in, they, they drove home with us after school and they went immediately into my fridge and started raging the fridge. And and sat down at the table, got on their phones, like didn't ask, didn't you know, do anything, just got their food and sat on their phone. And my dad had a fit. And, you know, these boys were shocked that, first of all, that someone would correct them. Second of all, that manners mattered. And third, that you say hello to the people in the house you're staying. You don't just sit down and plug into your phone. And sad but that's that's a lot of the way the teens are today, especially the the you know thirteen to fifteen sixteen years old. This is very unfortunate, and it is up to the parent. It is not up to the school to take the responsibility to uh, teach the child how to interact, how to put the phone away, uh, how uh, when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate to use the phone or the iPad or the computer or the computer games. And parents are somehow are shirking that because it goes along with what I've said many to many of the parents I work with here in my office. It is not your job as a parent to make your child happy at 10 or 15. It's your job as a parent to prepare your child to be 30. And when they're prepared to be 30, they'll be happy for the rest of their lives. And I think that this is the big problem. Parents are too worried about making my child angry at them. Right. Uh, I, I, my, my children were angry at uh, us very frequently because we set limits that other parents hadn't set. And uh, one day a neighbor came in and uh, said to my wife, oh, something terrible happened in your house? I heard Donald, that is me, and Richard, that's my older one when he was 15, going at it. And my wife said, no. They were just having a disagreement at the top of their lungs. <laughs> and this was the attitude. He didn't like he didn't like what I was saying, so he had the uh, right to yell at me. And I had the right to yell at him back. Uh, parents have all got to allow the child's anger to be expressed. And as I've said to parents here, uh, a child cannot be rude to you. A child can only be expressing his anger in an inappropriate and ineffective manner. So if you want to say to your child, don't be rude to me, it's much better to say, I know you're angry at me, but the way you're saying this is totally ineffective and so and totally uh, inappropriate. So why don't you tell me what's making you so angry? Maybe we can work it out. Because the child has got to have the feeling of uh, a certain amount of, uh, of equality with the parent when it comes to, in the teens, debating certain issues, even at the top of your lungs. Sure. But never take that anger too seriously. They outgrow it. 
no. And I have a thing I've told both of my kids. If you yell at me, I will freeze like a stone. You know, it's just the way I made. It's not that I mean to do anything because if they start yelling, I kind of go to this place where I can't hear anything. And it just, it all sounds like a Peanuts cartoon, like wah, 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 wah. And, you know, so over the years, my kids and I have worked through the concept of, of telling me what's wrong so that I can understand it. And it was very interesting when I first was talking to my older son when he was like, I don't know, 12 or 13, and he was yelling about something because doc, I'm known as the tough mom. You know, I'm, I'm single. I've got a lot of responsibility. My kids have chores. They have things to do. And they've had these things since they were little because they've had to. And oh, how cruel of you. Isn't that cruel <laughs> and unusual punishment? Oh, cruel of you. Yes. And Our kids also had chores for the time they were five or six. Well, so did I. I. Grew up in a big family outside of Buffalo, you know, in a little farming community. Everybody had chores, and nobody died from them. Of course, um, nobody. But saying no in my house is easy. You know, no is a very appropriate answer. But in a lot of the kids' peer groups, if I say no to them, they actually look at me puzzled. Like, did you really say no to me? And I don't know if that's being a teen, being an ego, being a, you know, somebody who's never had limits or boundaries, but it's always phenomenal to me when I see that expression like, huh, you're actually saying no to me? But if, now, if you are saying no, it's because you don't suffer from the anxiety and guilt that people feel with that word and that the children are hearing. This is not appropriate. But if you have intelligent ch children, you have to explain to them why you're saying no. Just saying no is really not enough. Uh, I once said to my 11-year-old, this is my younger one, they were both my sons were wise guys. I said to him, Eric, do it because I said so. He didn't get upset. He laughed at me. He said, Dad, that is the dumbest thing you ever said to me in your entire life. You're only saying that because you can't think of one single logical reason for me to do it. And that's true. It's true. And he was right. So I had to stop and think of a logical reason why you should do it. And I think that uh, parents have got to realize that if they, if they really think their child is intelligent as a teenager, then the explanation will allow the child to carry that with them all the way through to life. If it's just an authoritarian no, the minute the child gets out, from under the authoritarian rule, they're liable to forget about all the no's and uh, go to hell with themselves. Right. Well, and don't you also think, like, one of the things that I do, I say no and I do give my reason, but I've always told my kids, look, if you have a compelling reason or a respectful, compelling argument that you can get to change my mind, there's times I've changed my mind. I mean, you know, because you're a parent doesn't mean you're like omniscient and omnipotent and, you know, you know everything. And, and you know, sometimes there's factors that my kids have said to me that I'm like, okay, well, all right, then, you know, we can do this or I can modify my no to something. It doesn't make me a pushover, but it's also about developing relationships in work because they're going to hear no at work. And sometimes no means no. Sometimes no is a door for negotiation. You're absolutely right. Teaching the child the art of negotiation is extremely important. It's that's brought up in the book uh, about teaching the child to negotiate. And yes, it's amazing how often a parent can be wrong and a child can be right, because very often parents, are, the only logical reason they have is that they're anxiety-ridden about the risk the child might run. Right, they're afraid. And I think that, and I think that it's. Uh, it's something that the parent has got to just good teeth, deal with the anxiety, and uh, recognize that if you chose to be a parent, you're going to have 75 years of aggravation. And now you've got to deal with that aggravation in a way that your child will develop a sense of self-confidence, self-reliance, uh, pride in, in his actions. You know, it's funny. There's an old saying in the world, pride goeth before the fall. Have you ever heard it? Oh, yeah. And, it, and the way it originally was meant was that if you have pride, you're going to fall on your face. No, it's just the opposite. If you lose your pride, you're going to fall on your face. Right. If you're, if you're an 18-year-old and you're drunk out of your mind and you're throwing up all over the bar, 
that's because you have no pride in yourself. Right. If you have pride in yourself, you're not allow, going to allow yourself to do it. So it's very important to, for a parent to help a child develop that pride by being proud of it and by accepting and uh, agreeing with it when the child happens to be right and you happen to be wrong. You may be right for you, but you may not be right for the child. And I think that this is, uh, you know, it's a matter of understanding and compassion uh, for the child, for the child's uh, attitude and uh, desires in life. Well, and what's okay for me may or may not be uh, what's okay for my kids. I mean, it's it's a tough call to let them go when you disagree with them, but it's also mitigated risk because how does the kid ever learn to make a decision for himself? You know, if, if, if it's always made for him and I use this example very lovingly to my mother who passed on, my mother liked to make decisions for everybody and she knew best. Most of the time she did. But when we were going out to dinner as a big family, to keep costs down, Doc, my family would say nobody orders a soda and everybody gets water. And, you know, that would cause 10 drinks not to be on the tab. So good thing. When I went to college at Northwestern, I went out on a date and my date asked me at the dinner table what I wanted to drink. I automatically said water. And I didn't even have a preference for what soda, drink, whatever I would have because I wasn't used to it. And I, I'll never forget that going, I want my kids someday to be able to make some decisions because if they get out in the real world and somebody asks them a question and I've already made that decision for them, they won't know what to do. And that's a simple example of a soda, but it's symptomatic of a bigger condition these days with the parents hovering over the kids. I've actually seen Parents sit in a kid's classroom in third grade and in 10th grade to monitor the teacher, to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to. Well, I think that this is that helicopter mom that uh, we read about and hear about. Also helicopter dads. Helicoptering is not limited to mothers. Uh, fathers can do the same thing. And I, I think that uh, it's, it's up to the, the other parent to say, whoa, wait a minute, uh, let's not overprotect our child. Because overprotection is uh, totally dangerous in a child, and uh, there's a lot of that going on today. There is. So is it because of the media? Is it because of the constant influx of negative media that makes the world seem to be a scarier place? Like, I used to run around the, the, you know, my brothers and I fell in the pond. We fell through the ice. You know, I ran over a duck with a lawnmower. Like, we still have all of our limbs except one of my brothers missing a finger, so I scratched that. But when did the world get so super scary? I know it's different. But did it really change that much, or are we just exposed to so much more through digital? It's changed that much. It's okay. changed that much. It really has. Uh, I'm 81 years old. I've seen a lot of things change. Uh, we, we lived through World War II. We lived through Vietnam. We lived through civil rights. Uh, we lived through uh, all of these very difficult times, kids getting shot at Kent State by our own National Guard. Uh, we lived through that. We lived, we lived through uh, black men being lynched because they had the audacity to speak to a white woman. Uh, these are the things that my wife and I have lived through. And tell you the truth, uh, when we were diving under desks, no of you did that, because the Cold War, we were, going, uh, we were protecting ourselves from an atomic attack from the Russians. We knew what anxiety was, and we dealt with it. But nowadays, uh, there, where people say these are the worst times, they have no idea. And I've heard it often. These are the worst times. Uh, there's, there's no concept of uh, what real trauma is. There's no concept of a Gestapo agent coming to the door and dragging you away to a concentration camp. Uh, there's, there's none of this today. And I think that uh, it's important that parents raise their children to be aware of impending dangers. Everything from driving a car to walking across the street with your eye on your on your cell phone. How many times do you see people?
crossing the street watching their cell phone. Sure. I mean, it's incredible. And you, nobody's teaching the children. And that's up to the parents. It's not up to the schools. It's up to a parent. The parent, many parents are advocating their roles to the schools. It's wrong. It's not the school's responsibility. And I think that uh, one of the things that uh, Dr. Morris, who's a school psychologist, uh, has experienced is how many, often the parents are very angry at the school for not teaching the children what really should be taught at home. Sure. So I think that, that we have uh, a kind of lack of risk running from the adult world, from the parental world, on down. Now, my kids have been skiing since they've been two years old. And at, my, my younger one was a superb skier. And one day we were off in Europe skiing in the Alps, and he gets lost. Uh, we were sitting in the lodge. He didn't come back for two and a half hours. Everybody in the lodge was saying, did he fall in a crevasse? Did he get caught in an avalanche? I said, no, he'll be back because he was taught to be back. Right. And uh, sure enough, two and a half hours later, he walks in, he'd skied down to the wrong town. <laughs> but, the, but he learned from a time he was five years old how to be safe skiing. Mm -hmm. and, but that's only a microcosm of the real life. Real life is cause. Real life is jobs. And you have to teach real life is marriage and raising children because someday they might want to be parents and they have to be prepared. And I think that this is um, a the more of a macrocosm of what their life is really going to be about. And the parents got to prepare it for it. And there are many ways to do that, many more ways than we could discuss. Uh, discuss in our time here, but uh, hopefully some people will pick up the book and uh, get an idea of um, the many, many ways that you can help your child go through the uh, the 10 steps that we, that uh, Dr. Morse and I have outlined. That'll be a big help. Uh, one one step that we didn't have an opportunity to put in the, in the book has to do with money and many parents but don't seem to want to say to their kid when, the kid, when the child says, I want this new thing, and the very few parents say, that's nice, you can have it, can you afford it? But you'll buy it for me. No, I won't. If you want it, you'll work. You get, it, you get your money, you can buy it. Any money you earn, you can use to buy what you want. I used to tell my kids, uh, no, I'm going to save the money and I'm going to go to Europe for some money that I'm not giving you for these little things. And um, they would get angry at me, and I would say, all right, you want it? Work a bit and then afford it. How do you think we have this house? How do you think we have a car? I work, and I get money, and that's how we afford it. You want that? You work, you get money, or you wait for Christmas, or you wait for your birthday, and we'll put money towards it. Right. But you're going to have to put something in. And I think that the, this is a concept, again, where we spoke about how parents are afraid to make their children angry at them. They're afraid of the child's response. They're also afraid that if the next-door neighbor has a BMW, how are you going to look at your parent as a parent if you get your child to use Hyundai? Well, tough luck. You tell your child they should have been smarter and been born to different parents. Right. Uh, but I think that this is the uh, the ability to say no to your child when it's appropriate. But, I think but uh, it's in my experience, too, I think it's bigger than just fear. I think there's a real laziness in my generation to do the tough parenting. I I pick up a lot of kids every day, Doc. I work from home. I have my sound studio in my house here. And today was a half day at the school. I picked up seven kids and brought them, some to my house until, you know, it's later till their parents get home. And then some of the older teens I dropped off. And I can tell you in the professional zeal of some of these parents to do and be their best in their careers, it's easier to buy off a product for their kid to shut them up. It is, and then they pay the price later down the road when the kid is really not prepared to deal with the real world. 
Right. And uh, as I said to certain parents, in my own cynical way, uh, I tend to be a bit facetious at times. Well, you know, you have two choices. You can uh, do it your way, in which case you're going to spend a lot of money on psychiatric care for your child later on. Or you can do it this way, where you have a much better chance of your child not needing a shrink. So, you know, it's a... Uh, it's something that they, that parents have got to face. Uh, it's a, it's a privilege to have a child, not a right. And uh, and the privileges, the child did not ask to be born. I want to ask you, Sandra, prior to your conception, did your parents call you up and say, Sandra, would you like to be brought into this world? Right. Well, they didn't, did they? They made that decision for you. That's a very selfish decision. When you make a decision for another person without consulting the other person, that's a selfish decision. Right. Therefore, it really is up to the parents to compensate for that selfishness and to raise the child to be a healthy adult, not to be a happy teenager, though you don't want to be them to be unhappy. But when you say no, they're going to be unhappy sometimes. Right. When you say, can you afford it? I'm not paying for it. They can be unhappy sometimes. But at the same time, you're going to be raising them so they can cope when they're adults. And I think that this is the ultimate goal that parents should realize that uh, it's the idea of adulthood. You're only a teen for seven or eight years. You're an adult for 60 or 70. So you're better off with the happiness of the 60 or 70 rather than the joy of those eight years. I think that parents have got to be aware of this. Uh, it's not easy to be a parent. No. It's not easy to uh, to raise children. And every day is a new challenge. And it's a very, very uh, difficult career to be a parent because uh, you and I do pretty much the same thing every day. But when it comes to parenting, every day is different. Right. Every child is different. And so you have to have keep your judgment up, your intelligence up, your warmth and love and caring up, and an awareness that you're raising that child to be an adult and that uh, to be a a uh, self-confident adult, to be an independent adult, to be an adult who uh, can look himself in the mirror and say, I'm proud of being me. And I think that this is uh, the basic role of parents. Yeah. And, it, uh, and, it, uh, and it is 75 years of, the, of aggravation, unless you die before you, the child is 75, in which case uh, you don't feel aggravated anymore. No. But uh, no. <laughs> but I think it's it's an important uh, consideration uh, for parents to uh, realize from the get-go that from the day the child is born to the day the child is launched, as I said to my son, I, uh, each of my son uh, sons, I rolled up a, uh, I actually took the ro the cardboard roll from the center of some. Uh, paper towels and hand it to him. I said, all right, son, the baton has, be, has been passed. It's your race now. Right. And, and I think that uh, the recognition of passing the baton uh, is imperative in a child recognizing, hey, I have to make the decisions. That doesn't mean you disappear. I've been consulting both of my sons, one who's 61, one who's 55, of going through something, and they consult dad and mom, and they want to know our opinions of it. And uh, so it really never ends. But uh, if you raise them in a certain way, they'll respect your opinion. They'll argue with you if you don't. They don't. And uh, this is the important thing in raising them. Um, well, and creating it's, it's a risky business. Well, and the one thing I look at is. How do I create kids, help them create themselves so that we can have a relationship the rest of our lives? You know, your kids don't have to love you, but they don't have to hate you either. And I see a lot of parents treat their kids the way they would never treat their best friends, their people at work. You know, it's interesting to me sometimes how behaved people are at work and then not behaved at the soccer game or not behaved at parents' night as if somehow the rules of fair play, of respect, of of genuine care and concern don't apply to the people closest to us. 
That's, that's absolutely true. I learned as a very uh, young resident in psychiatry that good people do not necessarily make good parents. And it's important to treat your child, most of all, with respect. At 15, you have a young adult. Yes. You don't have a child anymore. I don't believe in teenagers, in the idea of teens or adolescents. I think you have children, young adults, and adults. And I think if you treat your teenager as an adult with respect and with expectations of a young adult, uh, then you'll be loved. Uh, if you give them love and they know you care and they know you're there, uh, but they know they can count on you. Yes. I, I know we don't have much time left, but I want to bring up a very uh, definite analogy that I've used for years. And that is the difference between a child being dependent, being depending on you, and a child being dependent upon you. When a child, when a child depends on you, there's some aggravation if you can't help it out. When a child is dependent on you, there's a lot of anxiety and fear if you can't help them out. And the analogy I use is if you're driving a car as an adult and you pull into a gas station because you're very low on gas and they have no gas, you say, oh, darn, or something worse. And you go across the road to the other gas station, you fill up, get a little annoyed, <coughs> but that's, that's it. If you're driving across the Mojave Desert and you're low on gas, and there's one gas station between you, the other end of the desert, you say, who? At least there's a gas station. Then the anxiety starts. What if it's closed? What if they're out of gas? Uh, what if I don't have the money? They don't take credit cards. What if, what if, what if? And the anxiety grows because you're totally dependent on that gas station to get where you want to go. So dependency is something to be avoided. Depend is what a child has got to learn to do when it's appropriate to sort of rely on other people. <coughs> and the child, will, the child will not be dependent if you start from the very early years, two, three, one, two, three, all the way back there through the teen years, to prepare it to be an adult. Dr. Moses, thank you today for being our guest. If you want to find this book by him and Dr. Moss, the book is called Raising Independent, Self-Confident Kids, Nine Essential Skills to Teach Your Child or Teen. It's available on Kindle. It's available in paperback. The current price on Amazon is about 15 bucks, $14.55. I promise you, parents, if you get this book, it's not a difficult read. It's not super thick. It's easily spelled out. It's something you can keep in your car and read in the carpool lane. I know I have. And you can get this information into your parenting skill set so that you can all have what we hope for is a better a better future for our children. This is Sandra Beck. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for tuning in to Military Mom Talk Radio. Want more information? Check us out at militarymomtalkradio.com or find us on iTunes for more than 500 free episodes. Drop us an email or find us on Facebook. We are looking forward to another great discussion. We hope you'll join us on Military Mom Talk Radio.